Okay, so I don't want you to get too comfortable. I actually don't want you to sit down right now. If you've been with us for a couple of weeks, you know that we're in Corinthians and we are doing a messy church. And when you came in a couple of weeks ago, I know some of the people came to us because all that junk that's at the back there was all over, and some people wanted to start cleaning. And we said, no, it's part of the setup. Now, all those boxes are gone, but we're still going to cause a bit of a mess this morning. And this is what I need you to do. So if you are a woman in this block, okay, job. If you're in this block, I need all the women to move to this block. And all the men, Peter, Anna, Peter, Maurice, you guys, you need to come to this block. So, okay, Carol, I can It's not the whole service. You'll be... And now you can sit. Thank you. <laughs> See, it's to watch because all the guys just come and sit down and they're like, Laka, yeah, and then nothing else. And all the women start, I like her. I haven't seen you in a while. We see I like her. Okay. So, why we did this will become evident in a little bit. Uh, but we are in Corinthians and we've got. Over there, I know it's a little shocking over there. So our dramatic video has had a bit of a facelift. 
Okay, but as go through Corinthians and the hall starts to change, the video also changes because they say that the bread and the wine changes and brings order to the messy church. Oh, compass. It's all good. God says some come early and some come later. Later still good. Okay, so we're in chapter 11. And as I like to do, I'm going to start with a story. So I challenged my, my connect group with saying, how early can they spot what movie this is out of? So let's see how good you are. So it starts off with the master coming around the corner. And he approaches the young apprentice and he asks him, are you ready? And the young man replies, I guess so. And so the master looks down and he tells him this parable. He says, when walking down the street, walk on right side, safe. Walk on left side, safe. Walk in middle, squash like grape. He says, karate here, same. Karate yes, karate no. Karate, guess so, squash like grape. Anybody got the movie yet? There you go. And so you get the shot of all these cars as the master hands this young man a bucket full of soapy water. And he says, wash all the cars. And then wax all the cars. And then Lacey comes back as Daniel is scrubbing. And he says, no, no, doing it the wrong way. This is how you wax. And what does he teach him? Wax on, wax off. Yes. And so he waxes on and he waxes off. And the next day he pitches up and Mr. Miyagi takes him to the backyard. And it's a magnificent backyard. It's beautiful. It's got a lot of wood. And he says, sand floor. But now it's not down, now it's up, sand floor. And Mr. Miyagi goes fishing. And the next day it's paint fence. On the fourth day it's paint house. And by the fourth day this young man has had enough. He's angry. He's, he's painting that house in anger. So Mr. Maggie comes home from fishing once again, third day, and the young man starts going at him. I'm a slave, and you're just using me to, to do everything that you don't want to do. And Mr. Miyagi tells him, show me wax on, wax off, and he shows him. Show me sand floor, he shows him. Paint fence, paint house. And then all of a sudden, Mr. Miyagi starts throwing punches. And instinctively, wax off, paint fence, paint house. And Daniel's son starts doing all the moves, blocking the punches Mr. Miyagi throws. And this training montage is brilliant. But sometimes I feel like that in church. When I, when I read the book of Corinthians up to this chapter, there's so many things that Paul tells us to do and not to do. Wax on, wax off, sand floor, paint house, paint fence. All these do, all these don'ts. This is how you keep unity. This is how you celebrate your freedom. This is how you give up your freedom. This is how you look towards the kingdom of God and who you can bring in and not which you can gain. This is how you look at your sexuality. This is how you handle your finances. This is how you think about divorce. And, and, and. And sometimes I go before God and I'm like, I feel like a slave. And sometimes I even feel like God's gone fishing. There have been times in my life where I felt just God's not there. And I feel like this young man 
And Paul comes and he tells us to do all these things. And again in chapter 11. Chapter 11 verse 1 starts fantastically well. Paul says, imitate me as I imitate God. The boldness of that statement. Who's been saved for, like for more than 20 years? Have you ever told that to anyone? I've been saved for, that, for longer than that. I've been ministry for 13 years. I've never told anyone, just look at me. The boldness. Telling your friends and your family or that new Christian or even that person that's kind of, you know, window shopping Christianity. Man, you don't understand Christianity. You don't understand the church. Just look at what I do. Follow me. To me, that's insane. But let's be honest. Who looks like Jesus every time you get in the car? No, we don't. But Paul has a gravitas to say, just, just follow me. Look at me. You understand Christianity? Look at me. But he does qualify it. Look at me as I look towards Jesus. And if he stopped at verse 1, we could have had a great sermon. It's a great sermon. But then he goes on and he writes verse 2 to verse 16. Okay, and it's one of those weird sections again. A couple of weeks ago, we did the thing about food offered to idols. And we're like, that's not us. That's not our culture. That's not kind of something we struggle with. And yet again today, we're coming to head coverings. Ladies, wear your hats. So our title today is literally, oh my hat. Because what's it about? And how do we handle scriptures like this if it's, if it's again, if it's a gray area? What do we do? Well, if I think back on what, what we've learned in Paul's writings, it comes down to two things. Love God and love people. And yes, the, the culture might not be what we, what we think, but there are principles that we, that we can adhere to. There's a piece of scripture, as I'm reading through this, and I'm, I'm like, sometimes I feel like punching Marinus. Because there are two hot scriptures in Corinthians, and I get to preach both. I'm like, dude. But then I get this scripture, and I love this. Uh, to Peter. To Peter. Peter writes. <laughs> to Peter, uh, 3 verse 15. He says, And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you in according to his wisdom given him. As he does in all his letters when he speaks to them, uh, in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction. I love this. Here's another guy that wrote part of the New Testament. He's one of the original three. He walked with Jesus. He's the guy Jesus said, you will not be the reed, you'll be the rock. I will build my church on, on, on your statement that I am uh, the Messiah. And he's writing and he's saying, that Paul, fantastic guy. That Paul, uh, great church planner, great evangelist, a prolific writer, but man, there's some stuff he writes I don't understand. <laughs> How cool is that? And we, and, and, we, and we get to the same place. We're like, there's some of the stuff that Paul writes that, that's hard to understand. But then he gives this caution. He says, and some people will twist those things that are hard to understand. And so there's a, there's a call on us as Christians especially with these hard-to-understand pieces of Scripture, to do the work, to exegete well, to understand what the meaning is that Paul gave, which is the heart of Christ in this specific Scripture. 
so we don't pervert it. So that in this we can still love God and love people. But let's read this, this weird piece of scripture. And then all the women can repent for not wearing hats. <laughs> That's not that. And the men will be repenting too. So get ready. Now, I commend you because you remember in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of the wife is her husband and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head is uh, covered dishonors his head, but every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. If a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought to not cover his head, since he is in the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head, because of the angels. Where does the angels, I don't know why he puts it there. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made for man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. Judge for yourselves, is it proper for a wife to pray to God with a head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach that if a man with long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is a glory. For her hair is given to her for covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. That's a weird piece of scripture. Why he mentions the angels right in the middle, not even the scholars have figured that one out. And yet, there's some contradictory things. He speaks about men not having to wear long hair. Wasn't Samson supposed to not cut his hair? Wasn't that the glory of God on Samson? So there's some weird stuff happening here, and we need to be careful. And we need to look at this and realize that some of the books, some of the letters, some of parts of the letters are in a very specific cultural context. And this is such a time. Now we have to be careful when we say something like this, because I'll be honest, a couple of weeks ago, we spoke about sex. And it would be fantastic to say that that sex thing, that's cultural. If you want to sleep with your girlfriend, go right ahead. You want to live with somebody and not be married? You want to be homosexual? Play the game. You want to have a couple of orgies? Bang on. But we can't. Where do we draw the line? And it's quite easy. Where does the Bible speak about these things? Jesus spoke about sex. Almost every single letter in the Bible in the New Testament speaks about sexuality. It's not a cultural issue. It's a moral issue. But when we come to something like head coverings, it is now and now only. It's mentioned once. It's written to a very specific church, 66 years after the death of Jesus, in a very specific cultural context. And in this case, we need to recognize the context. And the context is this little church is caught between two different cultures. It's caught between a Jewish culture, but when you come into the synagogue, the men and the women are seated separately. It's written in the context where if they have to be in the same building, different venues. If they go to the temple, the men go into one area, the women stay behind in another. If there's no space in the venue, then they will sit like this separately, but there will be a sheet or a wall down the middle. 
so that the men will not be distracted by the women. So the men won't go, that lady in, in row three, nice legs. That's the whole point. Because that's, isn't that how we are, guys? We're visual. And so there is a distraction when it comes to the ladies. Even today, when you go into a synagogue, there will be a separation. And so this is the culture on the one side, but on the other side, there's an over-sexualized culture of Corinth. Orgies, wife swapping, or just going to the temple to worship. Just go to the temple of Aphrodite, you go have sex with a temple prostitute, and that is your worship. And so, this little church, six years old, is caught between these two cultures. And Paul says, guys, we have to be uh, culturally sensitive. I almost said sexually sensitive. We have to be culturally sensitive. So what does it mean? To understand what it means, we have to understand what the veiling of women means. So in our modern times, we think of the veiling of women, and we look to Middle Eastern countries, and we look at, at, at men forcing women to be veiled. And we think it's misogynistic. In this time and place, it was not so. Even to the point where, the, where Emperor Octavian said women should be veiled, but if you are a slave or a prostitute, you're not allowed. It's against the law to be veiled. Because you don't have enough honor as a woman. See, wearing a veil in that time meant that you were set apart as a woman. It meant you had a place of belonging. It meant you were not available. It meant you carried great honor. So can you understand how the woman in this church in this time would want to be veiled. Even if you study the scripture, Greek is a fantastic language, but even the nouns and the adjectives have male and female. It's not the easiest language to understand. But when they write this, when Paul is writing this, the adjectives and the nouns are male. So it means that the men wanted the women to be unveiled in that church. So it's the women that are fighting for the right to be veiled. Because in this community, where if you are veiled as a Jewish person, you carry honor, and if you're unveiled in a sexualized context, you are available for anything that want to be veiled. So if you read this piece of scripture, it actually says, um, as we read it, it says, a woman has to have a sign of authority over her head, but if we look at the, the Greek, it says that a woman should have authority over her head. Not a sign of it's not the men imposing. Woman has the right to choose. Woman has the right to be veiled. Woman has a right to say that I'm a woman of dignity and I'm not available. I have a place. I belong somewhere. So what does it mean for us? If that's a cultural context, if that is the one meaning for this piece of scripture, what is the principle that we take? It was very easy. That is, when you dress up for church, why do you dress the way you dress? Is it to catch the eye of someone on this side of the hall? And it's not just the ladies. 25 years ago as a student, the only reason I went to church was for the girls. And so you dress nice. You've got to show, show the, 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 the package. 
Guys, why do you dress a certain way? And not just in church. Why do we dress the way that we dress from Monday to Saturday as well? Do we honor ourselves and carry ourselves with dignity? Do we honor God in the way that we dress? The way that we move in the world? Or do you conform to the cultural context and our cultural moment that says dress a certain way that is popular but it dishonors your head and your dignity? There have been times when I have sent people home, especially in campus. Either go home and change or just go home. You're more than welcome here but not if you just that way. Because we come to this place to honor God. We come to this place and we all stand young. We think it's about guys up there, but we're all standing young in our lives and we're looking to an audience of one. We're all on the stage and there's God, audience of one. Why do we do what we do? How do we dress how we dress? Does it honor that audience? Of one. So that's the first issue in this piece of scripture. Then there's the second issue in verse 17. And I love the way he starts. He says, But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it's not for the better, but for the worst. How's that for church? Imagine someone comes to you and says, Man, I'm thinking about joining the church. I'm thinking about coming to Christ. How are your meetings? Well, our meetings are great. People are worse off. But that's literally what he's telling them. You come together and people aren't better for it. They're worse off. Do you think people are worse off when they come together with us? I don't think so, but might be. He starts going on about the Lord's Supper from verse 17 onwards. And the first thing he tells them is that when you come together, you only think of yourselves. He started this whole letter about division and unity. For four chapters, he spoke about unity. Now he brings that up again. He says, you come together and there's disunity amongst you. Those that have much, they go eat. And they eat their full. He even says they get drunk. He's spoken about, about getting drunk four times in this letter. And this time it's even worse. It's not getting drunk in the world, it's getting drunk in church. Because how can this be so? Not only are you eating your full and getting drunk, but the people that have less are left outside. He says you're not taking into account where people are coming from. Some of these people in this church were slaves. They're going to leave at a certain time and they have to be back home at a certain time. Some of them are coming there late. But by the time they get there, you've already eaten. You've already had communion. And he says, these guys are left outside. He says, we look at you as a church, and we have Jew and Gentile. We have Greek and barbarian. We have the, the white collar, the landowners, and we have the blue collar workers. We have the have and the have nots. We've got the free and the slave. With the educated and the less educated. 
He says, this is the church. And when you come together, you should be united. You should be the church. He says, but you're not. You are still being divided amongst all these lines. And he says, it should not be so. He says, we look to Jesus. And he died for a united church. He died for a bride, not a divided bride. And that's the, pretty much the only reason I love standing up here. I don't want to preach. I'm very uncomfortable up here right now. But I get to stand in front of the bride. And I love it. Because I see white. But I don't just see white, I see English and Afrikaans. And then I see non-white, but it's not just non-white. We have five, six different cultures, South African cultures, in that non-white. And then we have Shona, and Setkwana, and we have other cultures in our neighboring uh, countries, also in our church. We've had European in our church. We have people that live in South Downs that earn hundreds of thousands. And we've got people in Echo Park living paycheck to paycheck. We have people with PhDs. Well, we've got the one, one guy here that, have, that has three degrees. And we have people that don't have matric. When I look at what I see before me, I see this church that Paul is speaking of. But I also see the church, the, the bride that Revelation speaks of. This bride that will stand before God, before Jesus one day and bow their knee and they will consist of everything. And there's no boundaries left amongst them. Because the cross united all of them into a new culture. But Paul comes in and he says, this is not you. You're still drawing divisions amongst all these lines. And he says it should not be so. He's pointing them back to the Passover. He says, when you come together to do communion, you have to think back. You have to think upon Jesus. Now, all of them would understand the Passover. Because a couple of hundred years ago, when they got saved out of Egypt, the Passover was made to be an annual thing. But even before that, they all know the, the blessing that was given to Abraham that pointed to the Passover, but then pointed to Jesus. That you will be blessed, Abraham, but you will be blessed to be a blessing. And out of you will come the ultimate blessing. And then they come to Egypt and they're called out. Tenth plague, death of the firstborn, and they have to get out, and they have to get out quickly. And still today, in the Jewish households, they still do pass over the same way. Three and a half thousand years later. They still have the salted water and the bitter herbs that they dip the bread into. And that's to remember the tears, the salty tears of slavery. They still have the same little cake that is made from apple seeds, dates, and cinnamon. And that, that points to the mortar that they had to use to form bricks as slaves. And they still have the unleavened bread because they had to exit Egypt so quickly that bread didn't have time to rise. Still today, same Passover in Jewish homes. So when Jesus comes on this night, just before he's captured, they're having Passover, and the twelve are seated there, and then Jesus breaks tradition. 
It doesn't do Passover like they've done it for the last 1,500 years, the way they still do it today, 2,000 years later. He breaks the tradition. He doesn't do any of that. He takes the bread and he breaks it. He tears it apart with his bare hands. And he says, this is what will happen to my body. Now imagine, those guys sitting there are 12 boys. If you study the Bible, the only one older than 20 was Peter. 12 boys sitting there and the whole culture that they were brought up in is being torn apart, just like that bread. And then instead of the bitter water, Jesus is taking wine. And he's taking that bread to the wine instead of the bitter water. And he says, just like this is my body that will be torn apart like I tore this bread. So this wine points to the blood that will flow from my body. So they understood that something dramatically was changing. This was a big issue. And so this church knows about the tradition, and they know how Jesus broke the tradition, but they also know that three days later when he stood up out of that grave, everything he said was proven to be correct. Every prophecy that was written about him in the Old Testament, every word that Jesus gave about himself, proved that he was the Son of Man and the Son of God. And so Paul is saying, this is the main point. You feel like slaves? Wax on, wax off, sand floor, paint house, paint fence. All of that points to the cross. The cross sets you free from slavery. You might feel like slaves, but when you come to the cross and you look back at what it was done, there's freedom from death, freedom from slavery, freedom from sin, there's a new life that is promised at the cross. So when you come together, set everything behind you and look at the cross. Everything that falls feels like work, every division amongst you should be set aside. For there was one unification. There was one cross. There was one person nailed to the cross, one sacrifice. And he says, that's what it's about. If I received from the Lord, but I also delivered to you that the Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took bread, and we had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also take the cup after supper, saying, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So we are going to do that today. We are going to have communion. When you take communion, what do you think about? And if you're thinking about the cross of Jesus, when you take communion, you think about his body and his blood. Is it only in that five minutes that you use communion? What happens when you leave here today? What does it sound like when you speak at your place of work, business, school, 
What does your actions look like? Do you feel like a slave still? Or do we recognize the cross every day of our lives? Do we realize that we, when we came to salvation, that salvation wasn't a once-off event? That saving grace is a daily event. That daily we come to Jesus. Daily we lay down our lives. Daily we repent of our sins. Daily we realize that we are not slaves. And when the Word of God asks us a bunch of stuff, there's a reason for it. There's someone who's much wiser than us, like that Mr. Miyagi. But he's never gone fishing. He's never absent. He's a loving father that tells us to do all these things because when life starts throwing punches, we know how to step in there and protect ourselves because our life looks like Jesus. Then we can say, imitate me as I imitate Christ because my life looks like Jesus because daily my life looks like the cross. We have communion on the left, we have communion on the right. So men, I want you to go fetch communion, I want you to go back to your wives. But I want you to do more than that, I want you to look for other people. Now if you're an introvert, you don't have to do it. Go to Jesus, sit with Jesus, that's okay. But if possible, go to someone else in this hall. Do an act of prophecy. Walk across the dividing lines. Now I believe we don't have many of them. I want God to grow what we have in this church. If we went and said, you know, all those other things were cultural, we condone a bunch of stuff, we would have a massive church. But we would not have a church that honors God. So get the implements. Come together. Cross the lines that might bridge or divide us. Reach those lines. Share communion together as the bride of Christ. And focus not on what you can get, but look to the cross, look to the broken body, look to the wine, and just thank and love upon Jesus. And if you are that person that only does that when you have communion, don't you want to just go and repent before God? Feel free to go use communion, cross the divide, and then we'll finish.
So if you don't know this about our church, we are a church that is open that if you receive something from God, you can come and share. So we, every Sunday there's someone in front that's, we call it our spiritual oversight, and you can come to them and share what's in your heart. And if, if we feel the Holy Spirit says to release, then we will. And so this morning we have someone that wants to share in a fear and trepidation. So I'm going to try to keep it very short. Um, God has been working in my heart for a couple of months now and um, just bits and pieces, uh, putting things together, um, sharing his father heart with me. And um, just after the marriage retreat, me and my husband uh, was there that night. I was like crying inconsolably. That's the correct word. You were vessel me <laughs> so um, I was just crying because God broke my heart for br- what breaks his and um, it was not for the complete lost people it was for our friends and our family that's, that think they're okay but they're not okay and um, then I started to feel that I need to read Job Job Yop, And I didn't read it, and I kept on reading other scriptures and um, Bible verses. And now um, I had the opportunity to go one of my uh, to one of my friends in Cape Town from uh, Tuesday night, and um, God already prepared her heart for what I needed to tell her. So, and this is not just uh, about her; it's just um, opening. other people's hearts for them to receive what we need to say so when I returned back uh, I didn't have earphones so I couldn't watch a movie on the airplane so I decided okay hey I'm gonna read Job and I got to Job 33 where um, I can't remember his name he started saying why do you uh, why do you say God is not for you he's against you he's He's punishing you. He's not. Um, you're his good and faithful servant. Um, but at the end, he said, "God is revealing Himself through small things, and we need to trust Him to show us where those things are." So you need to rely on Him, on on just showing His Father heart through worship for small things around you, through people's lives around you to just be open enough to see his father heart and that you can trust him that he knows better and he is for you and not against you so i just wanted to share that guys here's the point you can have communion as often as you want you don't have to wait for church you can do it daily in your home. Even if you live single, you can have communion by yourself. If you do it in a way that's worthy of God. She got a word because she became quiet before God. And that is what communion calls us to do. Become quiet before God and look to the cross. The reason why we exist. Reason for our creation. Reason for our rebirth recognize that we are not here for ourselves we are for a greater purpose 
We have been united by one faith, one sacrifice, edified by one resurrection, so that we can go to the world that is divided amongst all those lines, different cultures, different languages, different customs, rich and poor, the haves and the haves not, the educated and not educated, the big house, the small house, the big car, the small car, political parties, the list goes on and on, but not so with us because of the cross of Jesus Christ. And so we have that call to the rest of the world, to our communities, our friends and our families, our colleagues, our fellow students, wherever God takes you. But we cannot live that out unless we get to the cross by ourselves, become quiet, and receive from God what we need to impact the world around us. So may I encourage you with this. If you've never had communion away from church, in the next week or two, have communion at your home. Break bread with your wife. Break bread with your family. If you have to, break bread by yourself. But look towards God. Look towards the cross and expect great things from God where you are for His glory. Amen.